Do you like spicy food? Are you a spicy food person? Are you, you one of those people you like to kick it up a notch? You like to sprinkle a little bit of rice in with your bowl of sriracha? You, you go to the chicken place and you order the blazing, scorching, I can't feel my face and I like it, hot wings. That's, that's what you order when you go to the restaurant. Well, if you're a spicy food person, then I've got good news for you. It might be good for your health. According to a report in a journal from the American Heart Association back in October, uh, spicy foods and eating spicy foods might help you decrease your intake of salt. Uh, the spicy food people in this study, they ate less salt and their blood pressure was a little bit lower. So a little positive there. American Heart Association uh, recommends a maximum of 2,300 milligrams a day of salt. 2,300. Now, if you're wondering what that looks like and you know, your normal diet, this isn't really a spicy food, but, but a hot glazed donut has about 90 milligrams of sodium, all right? So that means that you could eat two dozen hot glazed donuts and still stay underneath the recommended level of sodium that you're supposed to have every day. Now, I'm not saying that would be good or wise. I'm not saying I know that from personal experience. I'm not saying I don't know that from personal experience. I'm just not saying one way or the other. Julia Calderon is the health editor for Consumer Reports. This is what she said about the spicy food study. The researchers found that the spiciness from the hot peppers seems to activate a certain part of the brain that perceives saltiness, potentially tricking the brain into thinking that the food was saltier than it was. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Trick yourself into better health. That's what you need, right? She goes on to say this, experts think that this might be a good strategy for limiting your salt intake. That may be true. It might also be a strategy for increasing your antacid intake at the same time because sometimes spicy food doesn't really set well. But what if we're not talking about your physical health? What if we're talking about a different kind of salt level? What if I were to tell you that your spiritual health involves salt levels? In fact, your spiritual health and your spiritual salt level actually determines whether or not you even have a true spiritual life or not. So what kind of salt life are we talking about with a spiritual salt life? Well, let's see if we can find out. Listen to Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 34. Jesus is speaking to a crowd and he says, Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? So Jesus is talking to a mixed crowd of folks here. There's some church-going folks in the crowd. There's some non-church-going folks in the crowd. There's some folks that showed up because they heard there was going to be free fried chicken somewhere when this guy got through. So there's a little bit of everybody was in this group. And so Jesus brings up a very confusing subject to this crowd. A subject that you'd have to be a, a science nutritionist to understand, right? He talks about salt. That's not a hard one, right? Anybody of any age in that crowd would understand what salt was all about. This would not have been confusing. And Jesus says that salt is good. Now, don't go to the office of your cardiologist this week and tell them that you can eat as much salt as you want because Jesus said salt was good. That's not what this text means. No, Jesus is saying that salt has purpose. It has purpose. I read this week that there's about 14,000 uses for salt. 
You can use salt to do all kinds of things. You can scrub your kitchen sink with salt. You can deodorize your sneakers with salt. You can even use it to clean up that nacho cheese dip sauce that you spilled on the rug. You can use salt for just about anything. But in the Bible, the pictures of salt that we see most consistently involve flavor and it being a preservative, preserving things. See, you can use salt to preserve things like fruit and, and cheese and meat. But, but the flavor part we're all familiar with, right? I mean, we, we understand the flavor of salt. Imagine today you get some of this homecoming luncheon chicken and there's no salt in the breading. You know, you'd taste that immediately, I promise. Or imagine you sit down in front of a big game to, to watch a game on TV and you pull out a bag of chips and there's no salt added. You'd taste that really fast. Or think about our hot glazed donut, you know, with the 90 milligrams of sodium. Imagine that that was gone. You wouldn't taste that at all, right? I mean, hot sugar bread. You don't need to know any other flavor. I think you're fine. You'd never know the salt was gone. That's a bad example. There's a story about a little boy. Somebody asked him what salt was, and this was his definition of what salt was. Salt is what tastes bad when you don't have it. That's it, right? See, we all know what it means to have a spoonful of green beans with no salt and a spoonful of green beans that, that has a couple of shakes of salt on it. We, we know that flavor. And so maybe the big question in all of this is, why in the world is Jesus talking about salt? Why is he bringing up salt at all? Well, Jesus had just been talking about what it meant, the, the cost of discipleship. So he's been explaining to the crowd the cost, the true cost of what it means to be a true Christian. And then he follows that up with a conversation about salt. So what was the, the cost? What were those costs that he was tossing out there for following after him? Well, he just got through saying this, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus says that you can't be his disciple. You can't be one of his Christians if you don't hate your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister and your, your spouse and your kids and even yourself. It sounds a little over the top, doesn't it? Well, he, he gets a little softer with the next cost that he gives. Listen to verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus says you can't be a disciple, you can't be one of his Christians if you don't take up your own personal violent instrument of execution and kill all of your plans, all of your dreams, and all of your ideas and all of your personal preferences. <laughs> Definitely a little bit softer, right? <laughs> Definitely a politically correct answer for why you should follow him. Well, no worries. He really comforts us with the next cost that he gives us. Verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. <laughs> Bless his heart. Jesus does not understand the concept of winning friends and influencing people, does he? Now these are, these are harsh things that he's saying. These are, these are some outlandish costs that he seems to be painting. I mean, the Christianity of Jesus does not sound cool. It sounds crazy. These outlandish things, they, they, they sound different than asking Jesus into your heart and joining the church. 
I mean, why in the world would you ask Jesus into your heart if these are his demands? You don't want that guy in your heart, right? Those, those demands are way too harsh. So what does he mean? What's, what's he saying? Well, let's see if we can kind of try to answer what he means by these costs. And we can kind of do it in one sentence. If you're going to follow after Jesus, then you must love Jesus and enjoy Jesus and obey Jesus and honor Jesus first and most. If you're going to follow after Jesus, you must love and honor and obey and enjoy Jesus first and most. That's, that's what he means. And so let's take that meaning and put it back into these costs. So if you love your family more than you love Jesus, then you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. That's, that's what Jesus says. But don't miss this eternal reality. The absolute best way for you to love your family is to love Jesus first and most. Why? Because what your family needs the most, what your spouse needs the most, what your teenager needs the most, what your toddler needs the most, what your newborn needs the most is Jesus. And so if you love Jesus first and most, if you are totally surrendered to him, that means Jesus will love your family through you. So it's not really a crazy cost after all. What about that second one? If you love your dreams and your plans and your personal preferences more than Jesus, then you cannot be his disciple. You cannot be one of his Christians. That's what Jesus says. But don't miss this eternal reality. If you make Jesus your primary personal preference, then your soul will get what it longs for the most. Your soul will be satisfied with what it thirsts for the most. What about that other cost, the cost of possessions? Well, if you love your house or your car or your jewelry or your shoes or your PlayStation or your smartphone or your golf clubs or your deer stand or your spring break trip or your retirement account or anything else you want to put in that list, if you love those things more than you love Jesus, then you cannot be his disciple. You cannot be one of his Christians. That's what Jesus says. But don't miss the eternal reality even in that. Because if Jesus Christ becomes your greatest personal possession, then you will have the most joy-producing, fear-erasing, stress-conquering, soul-satisfying treasure in the universe. See, the cost, they, they are high, but the benefits are higher the benefits are deeper. The benefits are richer. The benefits are happier. C.S. Lewis once said this, there is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. It is too good to waste on jokes. Yes, the demands of, of true Christianity, they're high. They're harsh sounding. And they're very serious. But the happiness and the wonder that comes from salvation in Jesus Christ, you cannot and you will not ever be able to explain. It is just too marvelous. It's just too wonderful. So if you have not, then please 
Repent and turn to Jesus. Turn away from your sin and, and surrender to Jesus. Jesus paints some very clear pictures about what it means to follow him, the cost of following him. And then after he paints those pictures, he, he talks about salt. <laughs> I mean, those sound crazier than the demands, right? He talks about total surrender and then table salt. You know, th those things don't seem to go together. Listen again to what he said. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? Don't you hate when you sign up for something and you don't read the fine print? You know, you've already paid your, your 12-month subscription to the Cake of the Month Club, and you find out that the first month you're going to get a great red velvet cake, and then the other months you're going to get apple cinnamon rice cakes. You know, the fine print would have been really important in that moment. Well, Jesus doesn't do fine print. It's not how he functions. Jesus is very clear about the cost of what it means to follow after him. And he's also clear about what that cost is supposed to look like 12 months later, 12 years later, or even longer. Jesus says, look, salt is good, but, but if the salt loses its taste, if it becomes tasteless, what are you going to do? How are you going to make it salty again? It's been said that the salt in the area where Jesus was teaching was, was different than what we might see on our tables. I've read that, that our table salt is about 97% sodium chloride, and, and the salt around the Dead Sea would only be about 12 to 18%. So if, if there's that little of that saltiness in that, then that means that if it gets mixed in with, with dirt or sand or other things, that, that it could actually lose that 12 to 18% that it had. It could actually lose its taste. And once the taste is gone, it, it can't come back. You can't go from 12% to 5% and it disappear. You know? If you're somebody that your phone is always charged less than 10%, <laughs> some of y'all know I could look at you right now because I know this is your life, but your phone is always like less than 10%. If you don't plug it up, it's not going to recharge. So you, you can't get this taste back. It's, it's not going to come back. Jesus seems to be given a gracious warning about what it means to truly repent and what it means to truly follow after him. So if we were to maybe put this in some modern terms, we, we could say it this way. It is possible to walk the aisle at about 12 to 18%. It's possible to pray the sinner's prayer at about 12 to 18%. It's possible to get baptized and, and join the church at, at only about 12 to 18%. Now someone might say, well, but hang on now, what I did was I, I brought God my 12 to 18% and, and God added his 82 to 88% and, and he made me whole. That's very noble. It's just that Jesus never talks that way. Ever. Jesus, Jesus never talks like that. Jesus did not say, I tell you what, I'm going to co-sign for you to get a cross. I'll co-sign a cross for you. No, Jesus talked in, in terms of total surrender. Jesus said, sign everything over to him. See, to follow after Jesus, it means you give the full title to every person and place and thing and dream and plan of your life. It all goes to Jesus. It's total surrender. So the question is, how do you know if you have totally surrendered to Jesus? But Jesus seems to be helping us move in that direction, maybe with this question. So how's your salt? 
How's your salt? Are you seasoning your home with the salt of the gospel? Are you seasoning your school with the salt of the gospel? Are you seasoning your workplace with the salt of the gospel? Are you seasoning traffic on the interstate with the salt of the gospel? And what does that mean? What does this seasoning look like? Paul was writing to some folks at the Colossian church, and this is what he said, Colossians 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. I'm a crockpot guy, love a crockpot. So, so the question is this, spiritually speaking, are, are you a crockpot that's consistently kind of simmering with the grace of God in your heart? Or are you more of a microwave? You're just heating up some spiritual hot pockets on Sunday morning, you know, just, just hanging out and just doing a little bit. Because see, if the, if the grace of God, if you're, if you're striving, if you're working for the grace of God to be simmering around in your heart and your mind, then the, the grace of God is going to come out in, in how you speak and how you act. But on the other hand, if what you're normally known by, I'm not talking about casually, I'm talking about what your spouse and your kids and your closest friends, what they would normally say is that what's coming out of you is, is being negative and whiny and complaining and sarcastic and, and foolish and, and criticizing. And all. If those are the things that normally come out, then the grace of God is not active in your heart. Because the Scripture says that that's what would come out. See, as believers, the way we speak and the way we talk, the way we live, it should be winsome. Love that word, winsome. It should be cheerful. It should be charming. It should be pleasant. That's, that's how we live. In other words, when people see you coming, they shouldn't go, ooh, I'm going to hide behind this door. Maybe he won't see me. <laughs> or when you're talking to people, they shouldn't be going, oh, man, how do I get out of this conversation? I don't want to be here. Look, we're all going to have our moments, right? We're going to have our moments. We're going to have a bad attitude. We're going to be negative. We're going to be rude. We're going to have those moments. But as believers, those moments should not characterize who we are. The, the normal pattern of our life should be this, that people know we've been brought near to God, that they see that in our lives, that we've been brought near to God. The normal habits of our speech look like we've got the salt of the gospel sprinkling out of our life. So how do we do that? Let me see if I can put it in some practical theology um, and practical terminology. I'll start with the men. Men and young men, in order for us to be the salt of the gospel, so to speak. It means that we should not be known as the guy at the break room or the locker room or the breakfast joint or the golf club or anywhere else you are. We should not be the guy who's always known for saying the inappropriate story or the inappropriate joke. We should not be known as the one that's always loudly criticizing politicians and criticizing pastors and criticizing coaches and criticizing just about anybody else that we can think of. Ladies and young ladies, you should not be known as, as the one that's always on the phone talking or on the smartphone texting the latest gossip or the latest complaint or the latest criticism or the latest conspiracy theory. That's not the salt of the gospel. And even kids, kids, you should not be known as the kid that is always bossing your parents around, always being rude to them in the restaurant or at the mall or even in the kitchen at home. Now, we, we live in a dark world. We, we live in a world of, of despair and discouragement and depression. So we need to be acting and speaking and living in a different way. 
I'm not talking about perfection, all right? We all are gonna have moments where we struggle in our faith. But what we're talking about is that this picture of who we normally are, it's consistent with the gospel. See, this is how Jesus talks about salvation. Jesus talks in such a way that it's not 12 to 18%. That's, that's not his gear. He's saying that our, our normal daily conduct should tell the story of the greatest reality in our lives. So what's the greatest reality in your life? Well, if you're a Christian, it goes like this. I once was lost. I was far, far off. But I've been brought near to God because of Jesus. I've been brought near. That's our story. That's our, that's our greatest reality. That's who we are. That's the salt. Is, is that what we're shaking out in the world with our lives, with our speech, with our actions, with our attitudes? Again, not perfect, but just generally, generally, are we seasoning the areas of our life with the gospel? A huge crowd of people is following after Jesus. He's got crowds all the time. He's immensely popular all of a sudden. He's the, the biggest speaker at the biggest conferences. This, this is his time. He needs to capitalize on his popularity. This is his moment to reach people and evangelize people. This is his moment to build his church. And so what does he do? Well, he looks out at this crowd and he gives them some demands for following him. And they sound crazy and harsh and outlandish. And then he follows up those demands by talking about salt. And he, and he seems to be saying that if all you do is, is make an emotional or cultural move toward Jesus, then later it may be found that whatever little bit of salt was there, it's, it's lost all of its flavor and, and now you're just tasteless. And, and not just tasteless. Listen to what he says next in verse 35. This salt, it is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Tasteless, useless salt, not good enough to be thrown on the manure pile. Well, Jesus, tell us how you really feel about this, right? That's, it's harsh, right? But again, what does this look like in real life? I'm about to read something to you from 1996. Now, it, it's not a perfect description of what we're talking about, but I do think it's helpful. It helps us at least think. And even though it's the description of a pastor describing himself, I, I want you to know that I think the principles that he uses, they apply to all of us. John Piper writes this, in the coming years, if I commit apostasy and fall away from Christ, it will not be because I have not tasted of the word of God and the spirit of God and the miracles of God. He says this, I have drunk of his word. The spirit has touched me. I have seen his miracles. But then he describes this a little more. But if over the next 10, 20 years, I begin to cool off spiritually. And I lose interest in spiritual things and I become more fascinated with making money and writing Christ-less books. 
If I buy the lie that a new wife would be exhilarating and that the children can fend for themselves and that the church of Christ is a drag and that the incarnation is a myth and that there is one life to live, so let us eat, drink, and be merry. If that happens, he says, then know that the truth is this. John Piper was mightily deceived in the first 50 years of his life. Wow. And he goes on. His faith was an alien vestige of his father's joy. His fidelity to his wife was a temporary passion and compliance with social pressure. His fatherhood was the outworking of natural instincts. And then he says this, his preaching was driven by the love of words and crowds. His writing was a love affair with fame. And his praying was the deepest delusion of all, an attempt to get God to supply the resources of his own vanity. Someone might be thinking, man, come on, Dal. Golly, what's your problem here? Why are you, what, what are you doing? You're trying to terrify me for the next 30 years? You're trying to make me constantly doubt my salvation? Look, buddy, I came here for fried chicken. I didn't come here to be spiritually fried, so just move on. I promise I'm not trying to give you tickets for a guilt trip. But what I long for all of us is is to catch the next words from Jesus. This is what he says. He who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear. So what do we need to hear? We need to hear one of two things in what Jesus is saying. We need to hear the promise of not following Jesus. And we need to hear the promise of following Jesus. So the promise of not following Jesus is a manure pile. The promise of not following Jesus is eternal separation from God in a place of everlasting terror that Jesus referred to as hell. He who has ears, let him hear. But the promise of following Jesus is not a manure pile. The promise of following Jesus is an everlasting life of joy and peace, of contentment, of happiness all in and through and around the one true holy God who is holy, holy, holy. He who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear. This is how Piper closes up his previous thoughts. I pray that you will not be glib, but serious about whether Christ is your highest joy. If you really bank your hope on him and in him, he will not let you go. He will not let you go. Today's homecoming at Holland Avenue, 63 years. You know why the doors of this church are still open? And you know why the doors of this church are not only open, but we are still experiencing vibrant, active, fun ministry. We're experiencing the grace of God in, in so many different ways. Whether it's the, the kind service of senior adults to people in need or these babies that keep coming out of every window in this building. See, God's grace is everywhere. And you want to know why? Because for the last 63 years, there's always been at least one person 
Sometimes more than one, many times more than one. But always at least one person. And maybe that one person is already with the Lord or or maybe that person is here with us today or maybe that person hasn't even joined the church yet. But at least for the last 63 years, there's always been at least one person and sometimes more that they were always praying and they were always preaching and they were always teaching and they were always telling their fellow church members, you know what we need to do? We need to bank our hope on Jesus. We need to bank our hope in Jesus. And if we do, then He will not let us go. But if we don't, if we don't, this campus will mock the gospel. Even if the building looks great and the room is filled, if we're not banking our hope in Jesus, we're doing nothing. So praise God that for 63 years we've been banking our hope in Jesus. And praise God that you are hearing me say to all of us today that we're going to fight with all that we have to keep banking our hope in and on Jesus. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, let him hear.